this morning we are wrapping up. This is week 10, and we're wrapping up our series on foundations. Uh, Before we jump in this morning, let me mention something I said last week that may have been misinterpreted when I was talking about uh, submission and authority, submitting yourself to the church. I talked about submission in the marriage relationship. I made the comment, uh, the reason submission is a dirty word is a lot of men today come home and kick back in their recliner with their tea or their beer and order the family around. Uh, That was from a worldly perspective. I certainly was not suggesting that you men should go home and drink a beer. I would hope you would not do that. That would not be a very godly way to, uh, to lead your family. Well, our purpose in the series on foundation was to cover the fundamentals of our faith, to lay a really uh, good foundation. Now, the study's not been exhaustive. We've not exhausted each of the subjects. There were other subjects we didn't even cover, but our intent was to cover the basics to ensure uh, that you have a good foundation, young or old, new believer, seasoned believer, to be sure you had an, uh, a good foundation because you need to know if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, you need to know what you believe. Now, let me mention this. It's been a 10-week series All of the messages, by Tuesday of this week, this message as well, but all of the messages are on our app or on the website that you can review. Or if you know someone who needs uh, to hear and understand these truths from a biblical perspective, you'll be able to take and and to share those. All right, we're going to wrap up our study uh, this morning. Our our last couple of weeks and this morning are on uh, the church. And I want to quickly review what we said about the church is really important to us as a body as we come together each week. You remember the primary uh, New Testament word used to speak about the church is the word ecclesia, which means those who are called out. We are called out of the world, uh, we are separated from the world, and we're called uh, or separated unto Christ. Now, you may remember we looked at the practices of a church from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, a devotion to the Word. We're devoted to the study and the practice of the Word. We're devoted to the spread of the gospel message. You see in Acts 2, devotion to community and connection and compassion. What does that mean? It means that as the body of Christ, we're, we're doing life together. We understand that church is not a place you go to, but church is a family that you belong to. And then devoted to persistent prayer, recognizing our dependence on the Lord. And we here at Geyer Springs, at the part of the body of Christ that we call Geyer Springs Baptist Church, want to be steadfast and devoted and firm and stubborn and even obstinate when it comes to our commitment to the word and to prayer and to each other and to our world. Last week, we looked at two complementary pictures of the church. One was the body of Christ and the recognition that Just like the body has different parts and many different functions that those parts carry out, the church in the same way has different parts. We all have different functions, different means of service, and every part, every member is necessary and beneficial to the body. And the second picture was of the bride of Christ, the fact that Christ, we belong to him because he has sacrificed himself for us, and we're to be using those gifts that he's given us to build up the body and We're to be prepared for his return when we're going to be eternally uh, united with him because he is going to return for us. And then we looked at last week the threefold purpose of the church versus our ministry to God, and that is our worship. And that's not just our our corporate worship gathering here, but we worship by the way that we live out our faith uh, day by day in the world in a way that brings glory to him. And then the ministry, the second ministry of our church is to our members having compassion for those in need, bearing one another's burdens, uh, praying for each other, watching out for each other, calling each other into accountability 
when it's necessary. And then not only our ministry to God and ministry to the members of the church, but also our ministry to the world, and that is that we are called to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples of all nations and teach them the things of God that they might obey the things of God as well. And then finally last week, and I think most importantly, we asked two questions um, that were really more individual questions for us to ponder. The first is, why should you join a church? If you're a believer in Christ, why should you join a church? Well, because believers need each other. You weren't intended to live uh, the life of faith alone. But then secondly, as a believer, you're responsible to the body and you're responsible for the body. As a believer, you need to be under the care of a local church body and you need to be caring for the others that are part of the local church body. And then finally, we ask, well, why should we gather? If we're believers, why do we need to gather? Well, it's, it's commanded in Scripture. And it's commanded because it's for the good of the body. When you miss your gathering with the body, it's not just about what you miss. It's not just about you putting yourself at risk. It's about the fact that you're neglecting others in the body who are also going to be put at risk if you're not here with them and gathering with them. We are called, Scripture's clear, we're called to be a community. You can't be church by yourself. That just doesn't work. And so we're called to be a part of a church, and we're called to gather regularly. All right, this morning, uh, we come to the last item on our uh, ecclesiology syllabus, and that is the two ordinances that we observe in the church. And the definition, if you look up the word ordinance, an ordinance is a direction or a command of an authoritative nature. Well, Christ is the head of the church. I'm not the head of this church. Christ is the head of this church. He's the head of every local body. He's the head of universally, he's the head of the church, he's the authority, and he prescribed or he ordained two outward duties that we're supposed to perform. And as you look through the New Testament, as you read the New Testament, you look at the churches in the New Testament, you'll find out there were only two ordinances that they regularly practiced, and that was baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, let me, let me give just a quick point of clarification here, especially if you've come from a different denominational background or you have friends that are part of some other church body or denomination, some church bodies or denominations will use the word sacrament uh, to refer to uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And I want to be sure you're clear this morning, the two words ordinance and sacrament are not interchangeable. And, And here's why. Even though those two words can both refer to practices that God has commanded, Churches that believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments believe that God's grace is received through the practicing of these sacraments. In other words, they believe that when you perform one of the sacraments, you receive grace from God either for uh, your salvation or your sanctification. And the problem with that is the Bible teaches that grace is not given based on rituals we perform. God blesses us when we, uh, when we perform the sacraments that he has called us to, but the definition of grace is undeserved merit. You can't receive God's grace by performing or by behaving or by doing certain things. The grace that you have received for your salvation was not on your merit at all. If it was on your merit, it's not grace because grace is undeserved merit. This is what Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not by works done by us. Not, not even our righteous works, he's, he's saying here. Not by works by us done in righteousness. Not even our most righteous works can earn salvation. Salvation is free. It's unmerited. It's a gift of grace. And then in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul told the Ephesians, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's not a result of your works, because then you could boast. It is the gift of God. So we don't practice these two ordinances that we practice in our church, baptism and Lord's Supper. We don't practice those things in order to obtain grace. Outward practices don't earn salvation. We call that works. And we, because of what God's word says, we reject the notion that works are necessary for salvation. So for us, these are not sacraments. These are not ways that we get God to give us grace. He's already given us grace for salvation. But these are things that we practice. They're, they're symbolic reenactments of the gospel that the Lord Jesus himself has called us uh, to practice. Now, you might wonder, well, how did we determine the ordinances that we should practice on a regular basis? There are three things that help us determine that. One I've already mentioned, they were instituted by Christ both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Secondly, as you read through the New Testament, you'll find out that these two practices were regularly taught by the apostles and they were regularly practiced by the early church or by the New Testament church. And that's, that's only these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So turn with me to Acts 2, if you would. We're going to look at one verse. And as you're turning there, let me mention to you that baptism, that's where we're going to start this morning, is a symbolic physical expression. It's an outward expression of an inward spiritual reality. That's what baptism is. Uh, it, it's two pictures. Baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for us, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul declared, or Paul said, hey, I've declared or I've given to you what I received as first importance. Scripturally, we know that Christ died that he was buried, and according to the scripture, he rode, rose on the Thursday. So baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for us. It's also a picture of what Christ has done in us. As we picture his death and his burial and his resurrection, baptism is a picture that we have died to self, we've been buried to our old life, and we've been raised to a new life. Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 says that when we're baptized in Christ, we're baptized into his death. We are buried with him. So that just as Jesus was raised, we also are raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism is, is a picture. It's actually two pictures. And it's not a requirement for salvation. Baptism is a result of salvation. When you come to the point of understanding the gospel message and you accept Christ by faith and you make him Lord and Savior of life, then you're ready to be baptized. And the Bible is very clear that salvation is by grace alone. That's what we just looked at in Titus 3 and Ephesians 2. And we're saved by faith. And after salvation comes baptism, that's the first step of obedience. Now look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. This is at the time of, of uh, Pentecost, after Peter has preached and explained the message of the gospel. And Acts 2.41 says, So... Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Now, let me, let me dissect this a little bit. Those who 
received his word. What does the word receive there? It doesn't mean that they were just present and they heard. It means that they um, accepted what he had to say. They responded to what he had to say. Well, what did Peter say? If you back up and look before verse 41, he presented the gospel and then he calls them to repentance. That's change. That's saying I'm no longer living my life my way. I'm living it God's way. It's a 180 degree turn from one direction to the other. They heard his message to repent and be baptized. So you see that first thing that happened in verse 41 is they received the word. They heard the message of the gospel. They responded to it. They made a decision to repent, and then they were baptized. So that's the New Testament pattern, that a person comes to faith in Christ, and following that, that person's baptized. Baptism doesn't precede salvation. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. It follows salvation. Now, when baptism follows salvation, baptism literally is an immersion of a new believer under the water. Now, that is not a denominational eccentricity of Baptists. We don't baptize by immersion because we're Baptists. Here's why we baptize by immersion. First of all, it's what the New Testament portrays. Every event of baptism, you look at the New Testament, New Testament the person is immersed. And again, if, if it's a picture of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, the immersion fits the picture of what Christ has done for us. The Greek word in, uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word for baptize is baptizo, and it means to immerse or to dip under. So sprinkling or a, or a partial immersion doesn't satisfy the New Testament definition of baptism. That's why we baptize in this pool right up here. If you've been here for a baptism service, that's why we baptize. You see the person is completely immersed under the water. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul said, we are buried with him in baptism. You can't bury someone by sprinkling. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we are buried therefore with him by baptism. Matthew 3, you see the account of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. How was he baptized? By immersion. John was out in the Jordan River. He wasn't standing on the bank splashing water. He was out in the Jordan River baptizing people. And Jesus came, and just like those others who were being baptized, he was baptized by immersion. Acts chapter 8, you see the account of Philip uh, sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and they come to a body of water, and he asks to be baptized, and he is baptized by immersion. You know, when you see someone uh, baptized by immersion, it's not just an experience for the person being baptized. It reminds all of us, when we see that happen, it reminds us of the saving work of Christ, the fact that he died for us, that he was buried. It reminds us of his resurrection and the promise that we too are going to be raised to a life without corruption, that that day is, is coming for us. So, baptism is a picture. It is symbolic. But let me tell you a little bit more about baptism. When you choose, when you come to faith in Christ and you choose to be baptized, you're connecting with a local church. It's not only a picture of your profession of faith, it's a picture of your commitment to unite with the body of Christ, your commitment to unite with the community of faith. If that's here, then you're choosing, you're saying that I'm choosing to be a part of this community of faith. Uh, I believe as they believe. I'm making a decision. I'm willing to accept the responsibilities that are given to me as a, as a member of this church. I'm going to participate in the work of the church. All of that is wrapped up in the decision to be baptized in a local church. Now, let me be very clear once again. Baptism does not make you right with God. 
Baptism does not earn your salvation. You're not saved. You don't have eternal life because you're baptized. You first have to be made right with God. That only happens by accepting the redemptive work Jesus did on the cross. Once you are made right with God, then you can be baptized. But let me at the same time be very clear, baptism demonstrates obedience. When you make the decision to come to Christ and you surrender your life to Christ, baptism pictures that. It's a picture of your surrender. It's a declaration that you belong to Christ, that you're not ashamed to profess him as Lord and Savior of your life. Baptism is much like, if you've been in the military, it's much like putting on a uniform. You don't join the military and say, hey, I want to be a part of this particular force, but you know, I really, the colors of the uniform, they're not, they're not good colors on me. I don't want to wear those colors. Or, hey, I, I want to be a part of the military, and, and, and I want to be a part of this particular group of, of fighting men and women, but um, I, don't, I don't really want people to know, so I'm not going to wear the uniform if that's okay. That's not going to work out too well for you. Well, baptism is just like putting on a uniform. It identifies you. It, it signifies your loyalty and your obedience and your service. Baptism tells people who you're loyal to, who you serve, who you're obedient to. Well, now let's get real practical. As we think about what Scripture says about baptism, if you're here and maybe you have trusted Christ, you've never followed through in baptism, maybe you were baptized as a child, trust Christ later, you still need to be baptized because you just got wet the first time, you might wonder, well, what happens? Because all you see is what happens in that little opening right there. You might wonder, well, what, what happens? Uh, if I come to Geyer Springs, if I come over with the pastors and I say, well, I'm ready to be baptized, practicality, um, what happens? What goes on? And I've asked Pastor Brad uh, to make that very simple and very clear for us. Thank you, Pastor Dave. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the next step of obedience is through what's called believer's baptism, and it all happens right here. I want to welcome you to our baptistry reception area. It's located directly behind the worship center, adjacent to the choir room and children's auditorium. In fact, you can access this space by taking the children's ministry stairwell to the very top and you will run directly where I am standing right now. When you get here, you're going to find a baptism team waiting to receive you to welcome you and to help you. When you're scheduled to be baptized, if you get here at 9, 10 a.m., you will be more than well prepared for this special day in your faith journey. You can also bring a family member or a friend with you as there is adequate seating to host them. And also the service is gonna be displayed on the television so you don't miss a single thing. So when you get here, what exactly do you need to do? Well, let me show you the dressing room. We have a dressing room specifically for men and for women. And when you get into the dressing room, you're gonna find that there are stalls in which you can get prepared. And the church provides for you a t-shirt that you get to keep. So what does that mean for you? It simply means you just need to bring a pair of swim trunks or shorts and a change of clothes after the baptism. When you come back in here, there'll be a towel waiting on you to dry off, hair dryers, and there's also bathroom access to both dressing rooms as well. And so once you have the opportunity to meet with the pastor who is administering the baptism, he'll pray with you, hear your profession of faith, walk you through how the baptism is going to happen, and pray over you. It's now time to make our way to the baptistry. Casey, what are you doing? Hey man, I'm just practicing my baptisms. I keep my, my baptism muscles loose. And so I'm trying to, you know, just kind of work that out. Hey, speaking of baptism, we would love for you to experience baptism. Now, 
Typically, it takes place in the baptistry here, and because of construction, we have the water levels down a little bit, but usually the water's about right here, uh, and it is warm, uh, and it is an incredible experience as you get to stand in front of the entire church body and just proclaim what God is doing. And so what we would do is we would ask you a couple questions. I would ask you, have you indeed invited Jesus into your heart? Do you want to follow him in all that you do? And it was a response to that, I would then baptize you. And so as I baptize you and bring you up, you may hear cheers and things like that. And, and people are just excited celebrating what God is doing in your life. And so we would ask that if you are interested in that, or maybe you've been nervous about being baptized because you don't know what all that entails, hopefully this video has kind of calmed some of those nerves. If you would like to be baptized, one of our pastors would love to have a conversation with you, how you can make that possible in your life. We are always prepared any Sunday to baptize, um, except this Sunday because of construction. Um, but you can come any Sunday. Uh, you have to give us notes before you come. But next Sunday for certain, we already know we have some folks ready to be baptized. Next Sunday we'll be doing that. And I would just say uh, what Casey just said. You can see any of our pastors and say, I'm ready to be baptized. And if you've been waiting, if you've been unsure, listen, get her done. There's not much to it. Get her done. Okay? All right, let's talk about, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's talk about the second ordinance of the church. You know, the ordinance of baptism is something you will only observe once in your life as a believer. It's a one-time thing. When you come to faith in Christ, it happens at the very beginning of your life in Christ. But the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that you will observe repeatedly throughout your life as a believer because it's a sign of continuing fellowship with the church. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Baptism of the Lord's Supper were two things that help us control or, or better yet, oversee membership in the church. Baptism is what happens as you're coming into the church, and the Lord's Supper is a sign that you're continuing in fellowship um, with Christ. Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And you'll find accounts of the Lord's Supper. It's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke. Now, if you didn't know this, the Lord's Supper actually has its roots in the Passover feast. In fact, Jesus and the disciples, you know that Jesus was crucified on Passover weekend. There's a lot of symbolism in that. Well, they were celebrating um, the Passover meal together on that night. Now, you probably recall that uh, Passover uh, happened in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when Moses had told Pharaoh, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh uh, continually reneged on, he would promise, and then he would renege on that promise, and there were a series of plagues. Well, the last plague, the tenth plague, was that God, if Pharaoh did not, if he continued to harden his heart, did not let God's people go, that God was going to take the life of every Egyptian firstborn son. So on that night, the Israelites were told to sacrifice a lamb. Uh, as was done, you see that done all through the Old Testament. That, was, uh, that sacrifice was looking forward to the final perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God. But they would sacrifice a lamb, and you remember they were to spread the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. And as they spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the angel of death that night when all the firstborn Egyptian sons' um, lives were taken by God, under the blood of that lamb, those in that household would have life and not experience death. Just as under the blood of Christ, we're given life. And so the Passover meal looked forward to what Christ is going to do, and the Lord's Supper now as we celebrate it um, looks back to what Christ has done. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, as Paul writes of the detail and meaning of the Lord's Supper. 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Christ, you know, the disciples still don't fully understand. So Christ is explaining his atoning death in terms of the bread and the wine. The bread symbolizes his body, that his body would be broken for us. He would receive all that punishment that he received before he even got to the cross. He would receive all that punishment that was due us. And then the fruit of the vine represented his blood. Now, let me tell you here another denominational distinction. There are some uh, denominational groups that teach that, that when you take the Lord's Supper, the bread uh, is literally transformed into the body of Christ, and the blood is literally transformed into his, uh, uh, the juice is literally transformed into his blood. No, the elements are symbolic. Um, they don't transform. There's not a transfiguration that takes place here. The elements are symbolic. And so as we take these symbolic elements, the bread representing the body of Christ and the blood, rep or the, the juice representing his blood, as we take these symbolic elements, the first thing we're doing is what he just said here, do this as often as you drink it, as often as you eat of it in remembrance of me. We're obeying his command to remember the sacrifice that he's made. We are reenacting on the Lord's Supper, but it's not simply that. We're, we're celebrating. We're commemorating that as believers, Christ has done this for us. The, the completed work of salvation is done by Christ. And so every time we receive it, and, and for us here, it's, it's every other month. It's six times a year. There's no clear instruction given in Scripture on frequency, but we do that every other month here. And every time we receive it, we're proclaiming again his death and resurrection at the same time anticipating his return for us because of what he's done. Now, there's a lot of meaning uh, in the Lord's Supper, a lot of meaning in the elements. Let me just mention um, four things that the Lord's Supper symbolizes. The first we've kind of already said, it symbolizes Christ's death uh, and our participation in his death. It's interesting that the two ordinances that Jesus instituted for the church both have to do with the picture of what he's done for us. Baptism is that picture of his death and burial and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic reminder of what he's done. You think it was important um, in his mind that we continually remember the sacrifice he's made for us. That's what those ordinances are all about. But the second thing the Lord's Supper pictures is our unity as a body. As we, in a few moments, take these elements together, we're unified in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul said, There is one bread and we all partake of one bread. What is he saying? We're all partaking of the same thing. We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all unified in that. So the Lord's Supper is a time that we're reminded that we're unified as the body of Christ. The third thing is, it's always for us an affirmation and reminder of Christ's love for us. Man, if you come in on the Sunday that we're receiving the Lord's Supper and you've been having some doubts, it's just a great reminder, listen, God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Even, even at your worst moment, even in your deepest sin, 
He loved you enough that he sent Christ to die for you. So it's a great affirmation and, and reminder of his love for you. And then it's also an opportunity for you to affirm your faith in Christ, your love for Christ. As you're, as you're receiving the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder for you to say, you know, Lord, I, I need you. I, I trust you. I affirm my commitment to you. It's an opportunity to say, Lord, as I take these elements and remember that you've died for me, I, I'm choosing, I'm declaring to you that I will live for you. And so those are the things that we think of when we take the Lord's Supper. Well, one final thing this morning before we get ready to do that is we take the Lord's Supper together. I need to remind you there are two scriptural qualifications for receiving the Lord's Supper. The first thing is salvation. The Lord's Supper is a sign that you are a believer. You're a follower of Christ. You're continuing on in the faith. So only believers can receive the Lord's Supper. And let me, let me pause and say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of this church, but you're a believer, you're welcome to share the Lord's Supper with us. We practice what is called open communion. Uh, we don't check your card at the door and make sure. We just take your word and trust that if you would say, I've placed my faith in Christ, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're welcome to receive the Lord's Supper with us. And what is the second qualification? Well, that's found back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, after we just read through verse 26, verse 27 through 31, Paul warns the Corinthians about some sin in their life. Very specifically, they weren't united as a body. They were, they were sinning against each other. They despised and they uh, disregarded some of those who were in the body. And he warned them that when you come to the Lord's Supper table with unconfessed sin, you bring judgment on yourself if there's guilt in your life. And so as we come uh, to, to receive the Lord's Supper, as we come to memorialize his death for us, we have to consider our relationships within the body, make sure that we're right with each other, but we also need to think about and examine ourselves and make sure there's not some personal sin in us that is unconfessed. We have to be sure that we've confessed and we've repented. And we're going to give a few moments in just a minute here. We're going to give a few moments. If you need to spend some time with the Lord and make sure um, that you have confessed and repented and you're not bringing sin when you come to the table. Now, this morning's a little different as you have seen when you came in. Uh, I know a lot of us have gotten frustrated through the last uh, couple of years about these pre-packaged elements and just all the awkwardness of that. We're ready to, to get back to the norm, but uh, we're still not at a place where we're going to pass plates and, and have you reach in and, and uh, take the elements out of that. So we've got some stations set up. Let me ask our deacons, you guys come on and begin to make your way. We've got stations set up. When you come uh, to that station, they are wearing gloves. They will hand you each of the elements, and you can take those back to your seat. And after everyone has gotten their elements, then we'll uh, participate. We'll take the Lord's Supper together at that time. If you're still not comfortable uh, receiving the elements that way, on every table there are some prepackaged elements you can pick up. If you're so uncomfortable that you don't want to get up and move around the room, uh, when others are up and moving, we've got uh, a couple of staff pastors down here, one up top, or a couple, couple each place. If you'll just raise your hand, you may have to hold it up for a minute till they see you, but if you'll just stay seated and raise your hand, they will bring uh, elements to you, okay? Now, you guys are on the floor, not underneath the balcony, but on the floor front. There are two stations here and two stations here. Balcony wings, those two stations for that balcony wing, those two stations for that balcony wing. 
Up in the balcony, there are three tables at each doorway and one in the center of the balcony. And underneath the balcony, there are three tables, one here, one there, and one in the center, but it's in the back behind you. That will keep you from getting too congested and clogged up and all that stuff, okay? So in just a moment, when we're prepared, if you will just go to those stations, again, if you're not comfortable going to those stations, you can just raise your hand and we will bring it to you after everyone has received, has picked up the elements, then we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together first this morning. And as you bow this morning, and, and uh, it's been kind of a different message and talking through the two ordinances, but hopefully the Lord has spoken to you about your place, your position in the church with regard to these ordinances. You may be here this morning and uh, you've not professed faith in Christ, or perhaps you have professed faith in Christ and you've not been baptized. And perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you as a believer is speaking to you about the need for you to be baptized. We're ready. Next Sunday would be the best time for you to be baptized because the longer you put it off, the easier it will get to keep putting it off. And all you've got to do before you leave here this morning, you can grab one of our pastors and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready. I need to be baptized next Sunday. Or you can call or you can email me this week, early in the week if you would, to let us know to be prepared and let us know that you're ready to follow Christ in baptism. All of us here who know the Lord need to be sure before we receive the Lord's Supper, we need to be sure we're in right standing with the Lord. So I'm going to give you just a few minutes this morning um, just to bow before the Lord, just to ask him, is there any sin in my life that I've not confessed, that I've not repented of, and spend a few minutes doing business with the Lord, and then we'll receive the Lord's Supper together.